0: I offered some images and concepts and themes in the very first of our sessions that I never really followed up on. The first theme is that Christ is a secular figure. What I meant by this is that he is someone who appears within the secular. That is, he's not a religious figure. He's not a member of the establishment. He's not somebody who's supporting any kind of religious orthodoxy, at least in his time. He's just a carpenter and a preacher and a healer, but he never identifies with the established religion. He doesn't disidentify with it either. He has a very complex relationship with Judaism and with the various forms of Judaism at the time. If we want to draw the lines, you know, secular and clerical in the first century, he's on the side of the secular. So the analogy would be if he was among us today, he wouldn't be a member of the Roman Catholic clergy. He wouldn't be a Protestant pastor. or He wouldn't be a Jewish rabbi. He'd be with us talking on YouTube. But to bring it a little further, I think as a secular figure, because the Christ, and now we move from the historical Jesus to the cosmic Christ of Paul, we have to remember that we learned of the Christ first through Paul, not through the gospel stories of the historical Jesus. So the, the cosmic Christ of Paul, as a secular figure, shatters the religious frameworks of the time. He shatters the Jewish religious expectation of who the Messiah would be and what Israel's place is in the history of the world. He also shatters Roman religious expectations, Roman polytheism, Roman emperor worship. And he shatters the Greek religious expectation, which we probably don't have much time to go into, but there was you a very developed, sophisticated philosophies of religion mystery religions in the Greek world. And it was directly to people who were involved with these forms of religions that Paul proclaimed the Christ. And the Christ in a certain way met the desires of those who were participating in these forms of religion, sort of like alternative religion of the first century. But he also destroyed and shattered some of the assumptions of these religions. For example, with regard to dualism, that this world would be uh, you know, wholly outside of the divine, as a Gnostic might express it, and that the thing to do was to leave the world. The movement of the Christ is entirely in the other direction, not away from this world into the div- transcendent divine, but from the transcendent divine into this world, identification with the world, with the fallen world, with the material world, with the world of time. So this destructive quality of the Christ as a secular figure is the point I was trying to make. So if we're now in a secular age that's come to maturity, it would be entirely misguided to assume that the Christ has no place in it. That would be to assume that the Christ is primarily a religious figure or is identified with institutional religious structures which no longer have a place in the secular world. He was never identified with the institutions, and he isn't identified with the institutions today that are crumbling in the face of secularity. So it's perfectly compatible with mature secularism. I think I talked at some point about the distinction between the sacred and the profane as the fundamental perennial religious distinction. There's profane time and there's sacred time, the sacred time. Is the time of the festival. The profane time is ordinary time. There are profane places. There are sacred places. The profane places are the ordinary places of human life. So the marketplace, and the marriage bed, and the household, the kitchen. And the sacred places are the temple and the, the church and so on. Uh, there are profane vocations and sacred vocations. A profane vocation is like a, a carpenter or a, a, a tradesperson or a, ha- a housekeeper. And a sacred profession would be the profession of a priest or even a prophet. Christ abolishes this distinction. And in this regard, he is the secularizing figure par excellence. He abolishes it, not by making everything profane and saying there's no such thing as divinity, or there's no such thing as the sacred, rather the reverse. He sacralizes everything, and there's no such thing as the profane anymore. He sacralizes, for example, birth. Because he is born of a woman in humble circumstances. And he is God incarnate. He sacralizes the ordinary moments of life. And you can see this uh, processively in the Gospel of John. The first sign that the Messiah is among us is he turns the water into wine at a marriage feast. What could be more ordinary than marriage? And here he finds himself, he introduces himself as the divine among us in this context. He sacralizes moments of sickness in his healing ministry. He sacralizes death, resurrecting Lazarus. And in the end, he sacralizes the most humiliating death, the death of execution as a criminal. So everything becomes sacred. Nothing is profane. He puts the lower in the place of the higher. So the prostitute, the thief, the tax collector are now in a certain place, in a certain way, they're in the position of being the kings of this world. They are the highest in the kingdom of heaven. And in this way, he shatters the social hierarchy, which was deeply ingrained in ancient culture. He says that this hierarchy doesn't apply. Or if if you wish to speak of hierarchies, what we call the lowest is what God regards as the highest. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful book called The Great Divorce, in which a group of citizens of hell are t- given a bus trip to heaven to see if they'd like to change their residency. <laughs> there are very stories about how the individuals on the bus react to the experience of heaven when they get there. And the great irony is that not all of them wish to stay in heaven. The denizens of hell find heaven repellent for various reasons. But the one that stands out to me is there's one person on the bus. I think it's a woman. She was a member of the aristocratic class. She... She belonged to the best circles of society. She practiced her religion. She was a member of the upper class. And she gets to heaven, and she finds out that her serving girl is a queen in heaven. There's a great entourage of people uh, praising someone in heaven, and they're walking through the paths, and she's wondering, who is this great person? And she looks more carefully, and she finds out that it's her serving girl. And she Mm -hmm. thinks to herself, I can't, I don't belong here. Any place that would put someone like her in a position of being a queen is not a place fit for me, so she goes back to hell. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful point, but it's deeply gospel. And it's this shattering of social hierarchy. We don't typically associate social hierarchy with the distinction between the sacred and the profane, but it's deeply bound up with it in the ancient world. This shattering of the hierarchy is the secularizing gesture. And so secular culture gets going, really, as the politics of equality the politics of the distribution of power. But there's another point that we need to touch on, too, because I I see that the whole discussion is going towards the individual. And we spoke about church at the very beginning, And we said that there must be a secular church. And this was a very mysterious thing to say. But the point here is, first of all, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it is. But I know that wherever the Christ is, there will be church. In the most fundamental primordial sense as community. There will be a community. Christ creates community. And he says this in many places. So wherever two or three are gathered in my name. There am I in the midst of them. That means there will be a gathering where he appears. It's not to say, of course, there's no individual experience of the Christ. Of course there is. Christ is the great advocate of solitary prayer and has a special relationship with the Father, which is so intimate that it can hardly be shared with his disciples. And he says, every one of you, each one of you will have this experience. So there's an individual path here. But this individual path, as Kierkegaard puts it, an absolute relationship with the absolute, this individual path does not produce social isolation and individualism. It results in a new form of community. And that's what authentic church is. I haven't read anything from scripture on this podcast. I've thrown a few things out there. But I would like to read just one passage from scripture to make the point. And this is from the first letter of John. It's the very first uh, paragraph in this letter. So we're talking about something that was written probably towards the end of the first century. It was there from the beginning. We have heard it. We have seen it with our own eyes. We looked upon it and felt it with our own hands. And it is of this we tell. Our theme is the word of life. This life was made visible. We have seen it and bear our testimony. We here declare to you the eternal life which dwelt with the Father and was made visible to us. What we've seen and heard, we declare to you, so that you and we together may share in a common life, that life which we share with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this in order that the joy of all may be complete. So the passage clearly is a, Echo of the prologue of John in the beginning is the word and the word was with God. Here the writer expresses it in terms of the word of life. The life that becomes visible in the Christ and the effect of this life is to establish a common life. This is the point I wanted to make, a common life. The point of the coming was to produce a new form of community. The word enters into the world, not only so that we should each have a personal private relationship, with him, but so that we should have a new form of relationship with each other. And this new communal life will be not an image of the life of the Trinity. It'll be a continuation of the life of the Trinity. So the common life of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will now be broken open such that the human community redeemed shall be part of it. That's the question, and I'm looking hard, and I I have a couple suggestions, but they're just sketchy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this new form of common life is not identical with any institutional church. Now, we don't want to rehearse old prejudices against institutional churches. Institutional churches have played their role, and they still do, and where would we be without them? This idea of an established social institution with property, with rules, with a hierarchy is not identical to this community, clearly, that he has established. And by the way, the Catholic theologians no longer argue that as well. So it is something other than that. And I think if we look to the first century, we get an example of what it looks like. It starts with micro communities, small groups of people living together in a form of life that is so radically self-sacrificial, that is so radically oriented towards charity, towards one another, that it it inaugurates a kind of equality which seems almost otherworldly. And then these micro-communities become centers of quiet resistance to the logic of the world. And the logic of the world it's not equality, but hierarchy. It's not self-sacrificial love, but powerful self-assertion and control. This is what the church does. Well, we'll go with pandemic metaphors, it's viral in the sense that it, it enters into the body of the world, which is organized according to this logic of power and domination, and it affects the whole thing breaks it down. And so wherever we see forms of community breaking down the logic of the world, there I think we see uh, the Christ, regardless of whether he's even named as such. He is himself everywhere, and so he is, in a sense, invisible. But his form, I think, is discernible. Do you see that? Do you find that somewhere? Do you see symptoms? or Do, do you find the sketches of something like that? In, where, where would you see that? I think we could point to concrete examples, but I think in order to recognize these examples as forms of the community of life that the writer of the first letter of John is proclaiming, we need to first look at what it isn't. And this is another point that we picked up, that, would, that I would like to pick up with the point concerning Antichrist. The Antichrist is m- m- probably more easily recognized than the genuine Christ. Because he brings death, he brings slavery, he brings evil into the world. But the first point, of course, is that the Antichrist doesn't look anything like, you know, a devil with horns. He is the Antichrist, he is the Other Christ, he is the Pseudo-Christ, which means that initially he is attractive, he's compelling, he seems holy, he looks like the Christ... He espouses Christian values in a certain way, but in a twisted form. He tricks the lovers of the Christ, the followers of the Christ, into following him rather than the genuine Christ. And he takes different forms than every age. This figure doesn't precede the Christ. This figure accompanies the Christ into the world. We spoke of this as Christianity bringing new forms of evil into the world. This is, this is you could say, these new forms of evil constellate around this figure. Of the Antichrist. And I think he's quite active in our age, and many people from different perspectives and in different communal contexts are opposing him because they recognize that what he brings is death, even if they're not calling him Antichrist. And so in this opposition, we can, I think, see something like the the anonymous secular Christ constellating communities. What type of death does it bring to the followers? What type of death do you mean? He destroys hope. He brings a culture of death rather than a culture of life. And he destroys community. If the Christ comes to establish a new form of communal existence, a new form of love among the earth community, the Antichrist abolishes it. He either breaks the communities apart into competing individuals or he instills despair in individuals that such communal love, such communal existence, such human happiness is even possible, which then enables the task that is individuals, the despairing individual is not one who's going to give their time, their energy towards building human community. at least the obvious place to look is in a form of life which is living out of christian virtues gone mad i'm quoting gk chesterton here Mm. chesterton writes the modern world is full of the old christian virtues gone mad because the antichrist is not going to be working with some materials that have nothing to do with christianity he's going to be taking the christian something that is properly and originally Christian and is going to be arranging it in some perverse way that it's going to produce the opposite form of life. It's going to become destructive. Or if We're going to go back to the pandemic uh, metaphor. It's going to be the antiviral that's going to demolish the Christ virus. I know these, these metaphors are all upside down, but I think it's correct because, because what we're talking about in the Christ is something that actually doesn't naturally belong in this world. It, it it actually is experienced as infection in a certain way, but it's the infection that brings life and hope and new forms of community. And so the Antichrist it attacks the Christ virus. So he's got something of the virus in him. He has to, right? He's got to be matched to it. There's going to be some kind of expression of the Christian virtues. For me, the most obvious place to look is consumerism. Because consumerism is... I think the ersatz spirituality of the developed world. We can no longer just call it the Western world because now it's gone everywhere. Now that, you know, China, there's a very successful form of Chinese consumerism which is sweeping across Asia, Indian consumerism. But all these world consumerisms share some very basic commonalities. So, what's basic to consumerism? Um, is universal in a certain way, like the freedom of the individual to shop, for example, or the emancipation of the individual from any kind of communal context. So they're not answerable to their past. Uh, they're not answerable to, their, to any kind of social context, but they can invent themselves however they wish. And this self-invention is to be pursued not in any kind of metaphysical sense, but in a material sense through shopping. Very simple. For me, consumerism is a spirituality. It's not materialism. What the consumer is shopping for is not stuff, but a new self. And what they get when they get stuff that brings them a sense of a new self, what they get is a hit of transcendence. And this is the false transcendence. It's a false transcendence because it's not a genuine transcendence, but it gives us a kind of sugar rush of having transcended our present state of existence and moved into something higher. What we see here, and we see this in the successful marketing of any product, is an appeal of the marketer to an authentically religious desire in the individual, a religious desire, a desire for transformation, a desire for the new, a, a desire for freedom. Transformation through Clever marketing becomes an insatiable need for self-variation. What they're shopping for is a new self. We're just getting variations on the same, but it has to be marketed in such a way as to give a kind of eschatological experience of the new. And that's precisely what the Christ promised. He said, all things shall be made new. He pointed our attention away from the past, either you know, the romantic past, the past that we were attached to, or even the cynical nihilistic past, which was much more the attitude of the ancient world, that the past just brings back over and over again forms of evil and tyranny that we cannot emancipate ourselves from. The Christ says, No, this shall all end and something new will begin. You are made for the future. You are made for joy, a joy that has never yet been on the earth. And now you, you need to live for the future. So this future oriented existence i take to be one of the most essential psychological features you could say of christianity and it's manifestly missing in many other traditions so this desire for the new is faith hope and love and it becomes twisted into a desire for or a consumer craving for novelty for endless variation or as one author put it the cycle of desire Acquisition, use, disillusionment, and renewed desire. This endless cycle of consumption.